My sister Kirsten is two, and a, two years and two months older than me. When I was growing up, Kirsten was the coolest. Even if she didn't think that she was the coolest, I did. Whatever she did, I wanted to do, and whatever she got, I wanted. Well, when Kirsten turned 10, she got this amazing gift. She got a bike, and not just a, a regular bike. This was an adult bike with 10 speeds. And you can see that we all were jealous of this bike. You might be able to see me trying to run away there. Uh, this bike was so glorious. It was Kirsten's favorite colors, purple and pink, which just so happened to be my favorite colors, except in reverse order, pink and purple. My jealousy eyes got huge. I loved this bike. I wanted this bike. And so I realized that I had two months to try to conjure up a plan so that my parents would feel like they needed to buy me a bike too. Now, growing up in a family with five kids, we didn't get a lot of big, expensive gifts. So I knew that I needed to be a little bit cunning in order to get a bike like this for my eighth birthday. My parents might not think that I'm old enough or adult enough, like perfect Kirsten, but maybe I could find a way to do it so that they felt that they needed to give me this bike. I didn't think of myself as the most cunning kid in the world, but I, I devised a plan, and I thought, well, we'll see if this works. So I cornered my mom when she was alone, and I told her about this glorious bike that Kirsten had been given. Mom, this bike is just amazing. It's just so wonderful, but I realized there's actually something that I want more than this bike. So I lured my mom into it. This bike is so amazing. It's a bike anybody would want. And you know, I don't really need this bike. I can get along with something less. Maybe just a Felicity American Girl doll one of the most expensive dolls at the time that I knew that my parents probably wouldn't buy for me. So I, I told her that it didn't quite need to be fair. Maybe she could just get me a doll instead of, you know, this bike. So I waited, and two months later, guess what I got? A Felicity American Girl doll. My plan worked. And I share this story with you because I prefer to see myself as only good, just as I prefer to see people as only good or only evil, like some of us do. But the reality is every last one of us is really complex. Sometimes we're cunning, sometimes we're selfless, sometimes we act evil, and the list goes on. And the characters we encounter in Scripture are equally complex. Perhaps we need this reminder as we encounter one of the glorious fathers of the faith, Jacob. Jacob is the protagonist, yet it's frankly difficult to know what to do with him. He cunningly convinces his brother to sell him his birthright. Then he colludes with his mother to cheat his brother out of his father's blessing. So he takes his brother's birthright and blessing, 
and he realizes that there's nothing left to take or to give or to get, so he needs to run away. So he goes off and finds a beautiful woman that he wants to marry. When finally he gets a taste of his own medicine, his father-in-law cheats him and gives him his homely older daughter instead. Jacob finds out about it, and fortunately for him, their culture is okay with polygamy. So he works for his father-in-law for another seven years until finally he can have the wife that he really wants, the beautiful one. So now Jacob has everything. He's got wives, children, his brother's birthright and blessing, but now he wants to break off on his own. His father-in-law agrees to separate the livestock with him, but Jacob decides to trick him and, so that he can take even more than, than he was going to get. So he makes lots of other animals speckled and spotted and dark so that he can get all of these animals. Old Testament theologian Walter Brueggemann comments that even the narrator doesn't seem to be wholly on Jacob's side. The narrator instead has a curious fascination with and inclination toward Jacob's brother Esau, the one with the natural rights. Yet the claim, Jacob seems, yet the claim of Jacob seems to advance even against the wish of the narrator. We don't have a simple story here. No flat characters. We've got a wily protagonist named Jacob, which means deceiver. We've got payback, deception, jealousy, fear, and later, tragically, abuse and death. Yet all throughout Jacob's story, we see the unmerited favor and faithfulness of God. As Brueggemann writes, the narrator knows that the purposes of God are tangled in a web of self-interest and self-seeking. This grandson of the promise is a rascal compared to his faithful grandfather Isaac or his successful father, uh, faithful grandfather Abraham or his successful father Isaac. Amazingly, in a way that seems utterly unfair, Scripture lists the fathers of the faith as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not Abraham, Isaac, and Esau, which would have been fair and right. On our way home from our recent trip to Tahoe, I realized that it was perhaps too late that I would have been wiser not to ask my husband to tell me about Game of Thrones. I missed that cultural phenomenon, and so I asked my husband to tell me about it. And he said, oh, you'd hate it. It's way too graphic, and all the noble characters get killed off within the first few seasons. And then he went on for, no kidding, about an hour, telling me about 10 main characters, and then letting me know that there's at least 50 more characters that he didn't even list in that hour. He went on to talk about how the author was a genius and he overthrew standard fantasy tropes. And how, maybe minus the dragons, his storyline was maybe more similar to how the Middle Ages, the ancient world, and perhaps even today is. But perhaps not how we act, but more of our motivations. You and I are not so simple. 
and neither are the characters in the Bible. It'd be much simpler to think of ourselves as purely good and the ones that we don't like as purely evil. We would really like to believe that. We'd like to believe that life and God's purposes follow predictable and honorable patterns. You and I would like to know that we'll be rewarded for our obedience to God, that we'll be rewarded for making honorable and respectable decisions, for being good people, really. And this is, in fact, the very point of the book of Job, which many scholars believe was the first book written in Scripture. The whole conceit of Job is to fly in the face of the law of retribution, the belief that you and I are rewarded for doing good and then punished for doing evil. Job is a story of an honorable man who has everything taken from him, even though he is honorable and good. And then when he least expects it, because of no effort of his own, God extravagantly gives to Job and even more than he had at the beginning. In the story of Jacob, God chooses the deceitful younger brother who lived a life of fear and estranged relationships. He chose him to be the father of many nations and kings. By all accounts, God should have chosen Esau, the older brother, the rightful inheritor, but God didn't. And somehow you and I have inherited the notion that we're not to ask why, that only bad, juvenile, or unfaithful people ask why, that the more mature people simply accept it. But Scripture gives us the opposite example. Job asks why, and God doesn't rebuke him for it. The psalmist asks why, and it seems rather normal, and it's encouraged, really. In fact, one theologian commented that asking why is the beginning of theology. Author and theologian Frederick Buechner wrote a segment on the book of Job in his book, Telling the Truth, the Gospel as Tragedy, Comedy, and Fairy Tale. Job does not hear from God in quite some time, and it's out of a whirlwind that Job first hears God say, Who is this? that darkens counsel by words without knowledge. It is out of the absence of God that God makes himself present. And it's not just the whirlwind that stands for his absence, not just the storm and chaos of the world that knocks into a cocked hat all man's attempts to find God in the world. But God is absent also from all Job's words about God and from the words of his comforters because they are words without knowledge and obscure the issue of God by trying to define him as present in ways and in places where he is not. To define him as moral order, as the best answer man can give to the problem of his life. God is not an answer man can give, God says. God himself does not give answers. He gives himself. And in the midst of the whirlwind of his absence, he gives himself. In the story of Jacob, there are many instances where God seems absent, where we might to expect him to show off in grandeur and to show up, and he doesn't. 
And then he's present and makes promises in times and in ways that makes absolutely no sense. Before Jacob reunites with his brother Esau, God fights him. And of all things, Jacob wins, but not without an injury. God puts out his hip and then gives him a new name. You are Israel, which seems to, th- to mean he struggles with God. Talk about interesting. Jacob starts off as deceiver and ends up as one who struggles with God. As we'll see in this journey through Scripture this year, Israel and his descendants will struggle with God. They will serve their own interests and their own causes, and God will choose to intervene in times and in places that are surprising. They'll try to intervene and cause God to serve their purposes, but God will not be managed. In God's own timing, and in a way only God can, he will send his only son to be born of a virgin. His ministry will first be to the descendants of Israel and then to the entire world. He will be the only perfect person ever to live, yet he'll be rejected and despised by many. Because when he comes, he'll upset the whole apple cart. The first will be last, and the last will be first. The impoverished, despised, and sinners will often be the only ones to truly get it. Jesus will not be who many of them want him to be. And Jesus is not what we are often tempted to want him to be either. Jesus is not a meek God among many other options. He is not a set of beliefs that we agree to, that we assent to. He's not a symbol of our highest ideals, the kindest person. He's not our good luck charm or a genie. As the Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the Colossians, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God, and you were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior, but now you have been reconciled by Christ's physical death through, uh, body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Through no goodness of your own, but out of God's great love for you, Jesus has chosen you. And he has reconciled you to God the Father through his death on the cross. 
through your baptism into Christ Jesus, you were baptized into Christ's death. And you were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, you too may live a new life. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new has come. You have been chosen and given a new identity. You are a new creation, a child of God, and you, child of God, have been given a purpose, the message of reconciliation. You are therefore Christ's ambassador, as though God were making his appeal through you to the entire world. May the light of Christ shine through you, child of God. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your unpredictability, that you have chosen scoundrels like Jacob and like us. God, as Martin Luther said, we are beggars. God, we come to you knowing that you are good and that you have come to save us. We thank you for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which sets us free. We pray that we would continue to live in that freedom, that we would know your love for us, that all the world might be reconciled to you, because you love each one of us and you love the world. We pray that we would know that more deeply. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.